You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. How should we as primary care providers treat our patients who are at an increased risk for breast cancer? What advice should we give them? How should they be evaluated? How should we follow them up? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mark Robson from the Clinical Genetics Service, the Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Robson. Thank you for having me. Tell us how common is uh, genetic breast cancer and how do we differentiate that from cases of breast cancer that are not uh, linked to a specific genetic mutation? I think the first point that's very important for everyone to understand is that most breast cancer is not related to any defined genetic predisposition. Most women with breast cancer don't have a single gene that's caused their disease. There are also a group of women with breast cancer who have what we call familial breast cancer, where there's one or sometimes more individuals within the family who have also had breast cancer. Most of those women also don't have a specific genetic predisposition, particularly if their family members were diagnosed at later ages or if they're more distantly related. The people who need to consider more seriously whether there might be a specific genetic predisposition, what we call hereditary breast cancer, are those who have multiple relatives affected with breast or actually ovarian cancer for reasons that perhaps we can touch on later, usually at younger ages and in relatively close relationships. So for instance, mothers, sisters, daughters, perhaps also aunts. It's important to remember that Specific genetic predispositions can be passed down from the father's side. So although many people think that it's only their mother's side that they need to be concerned about when considering family history, it's actually both sides. So if you have an individual, a woman, who has multiple relatives affected with breast cancer, especially before the age of 50, or bilateral breast cancer, particularly if one of them were young, were diagnosed young, or breast and ovarian cancer, then it's probably worth going to the next step and talking about a more extensive evaluation. And if I have a more educated female who comes in with a single relative and asks for the BRCA testing, uh, is that something we should discourage? Yeah, I think it depends on the circumstance. There are certain situations where the family history may be actually very limited. So Somebody, for instance, may have no paternal aunts, only paternal uncles, or perhaps their parents were only children and then their sister were diagnosed at a young age. In that setting, it is still possible that there could be a genetic predisposition present. Also, there are certain ethnic groups in whom the mutations, particularly in BRCA1 and BRCA2, are more common. And so in that setting, we tend to have a lower threshold for referral for discussions. And I think of those uh, ethnic groups as uh, Eastern European Jewish uh, women? Well, particularly in the United States, women of Eastern European Jewish descent are, are important, but also, uh, for instance, in Iceland, there are founder mutations in certain parts of Eastern Europe in non-Jewish populations. There are founder mutations, and these are common recurring mutations that are more common than the general population frequency. And so, you know, to some extent, it's a it's a knowledge base. In other words, how much do you know about the specific ethnicities that are involved, but for all practical purposes in most of the United States, it's Eastern European Jewish women. And then if you do go and test for these two identified mutations, the BRCA uh, mutations, what uh, kind of risk are we talking about for these women? 
Well, the breast cancer risks range in certain families as high as 80% by age 70, although some of the estimates in less dramatically affected families have been a little bit lower than that. But no matter what, clearly much higher than the general population risk, and not only that, shifted towards younger ages. The ovarian cancer risk, which is the other thing that travels along with mutations in these genes, depends actually on which gene is mutated. So for BRCA1, a woman may have up to a 40% ovarian cancer risk. For BRCA2, it may be up to 25% by age 70. And in comparison, the average risk in the general population is 1.5%. So really, those are dramatic increases, and it does matter, uh, obviously, which of the BRCA genes have mutated. Yeah, I mean, really, this is one of the most common reasons why people come in for testing is actually to define ovarian cancer risk. Uh, and unfortunately, the absence of ovarian cancer in the family doesn't necessarily mean that it can't happen. So multiple uh, relatives, particularly with breast cancer, ovarian cancer at young age, uh, and then in other situations when some of the family history may be more difficult to uh, ascertain. Let's say we go ahead and we get the, the testing and a woman comes out positive. How, how should we follow these patients? Well, the women have fundamentally two options for each of the disease sites, so in other words, breast and ovary. One is a special surveillance option, in other words, a attempt to detect cancer early should it arise, um, and the other is actually a prevention option, trying to do something that keeps it from developing in the first place. The Surveillance options for breast cancer include annual mammography, and we actually begin that at age 25, which is when the risk starts to increase. And uh, more recently, we have been incorporating annual breast MRI screening uh, because the incremental yield of the breast MRI screening is quite significant, particularly in younger women. And that is complementary to the mammogram, is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that, that that is correct. The mammography will still pick up a small proportion of cases that are not detected by MR. Uh, and these tend to be sort of earlier cases of breast cancer, often DCIS, that are presenting with microcalcifications and either don't have sufficient enhancement to jar the radiologist or are lost in a background of nonspecific enhancement. So um, they're both kind of still done together. We're not ready to get rid of mammography. Dr. Robson, are there other things uh, that need to be done if the woman uh, chooses the surveillance path? Well, the other thing is um, ovarian cancer screening, which is a transvaginal ultrasound and a CA-125 measurement twice a year. These are empiric recommendations that are not based upon any evidence of benefit. Uh, and as a matter of fact, ovarian cancer screening, as I'm sure everyone is well aware, uh, frequently fails to detect cancer at an early stage, even if it's still asymptomatic. But a lot of these women are young women who have not yet completed childbearing and are not ready to avail themselves of what's probably the more effective option, which is actually to go ahead and preventively remove the fallopian tubes in the ovaries. And so we use the ovarian cancer surveillance as a bridge, if you will. So in the absence of any uh, proven screening methods, we use what we have because the risk is higher and, and the cost of ovarian cancer obviously is devastating. Exactly. Although it's clearly, I think, women, once they've actually completed childbearing, you know, around the age of 30 to 35, which is when the ovarian cancer risk picks up, 
should start having conversations with their physicians about whether or not to do preventive surgery. And the other benefit of premature menopause, if there is such a thing, is that it actually also appears to reduce breast cancer risk for reasons that we don't quite understand yet. So a woman who enters premature menopause not only reduces her ovarian cancer risk, but also has an impact upon her breast cancer risk. Now, you mentioned that there's no uh, data showing value for ovarian cancer screening. Uh, Is there any data yet in women with these mutations that the specialized heightened screening with MRI and mammography changes endpoints? Yeah, it's a very important question, and the honest answer to that is no. All the data are inferential. There does appear to be downstaging, which is taken as sort of presumptive evidence for benefit, but it's going to be very difficult to actually do a properly designed randomized trial in this kind of setting Mm -hmm. with very high-risk patients. And... um, I'm not sure that we're ever going to have the kind of evidence that we'd like to answer that question. It's pretty clear that even MRI-based screening is still not perfect. If you look at the aggregated studies, there's still about 15 to 20% of patients have positive nodes at the time of diagnosis, even with screen-detected cancers. And a unfortunately significant proportion of them are still greater than a centimeter in size. So even if a woman has her cancer detected by screening, there's still a very substantial chance that she's going to require additional therapy, including systemic therapy. And there's a measurable chance that it's unfortunately going to be a fatal cancer even so. And so because of that, some women actually do think about preventive mastectomy as an option for management of risk, and it's not an unreasonable one for this subset of patients. And uh, there is some data about how uh, if, if they choose the treatment path and or the prevention path, I should say, with mastectomy, that does effectively reduce their risk? Yeah, I think that there's good observational data now that Um, the risk of breast cancer after a properly performed preventive mastectomy is currently very, very low. It's not zero because there can be microscopic rests of breast tissue that are apart from the main breast mound, and those can degenerate. But the risk is actually very, very small. At least it appears to be very small. And then also for ovarian salpingoophorectomy, not 100%, but pretty darn good. Well, it certainly does appear to be better than non-intervention. You know, the incidence rates appear to be substantially lower, but there still is a risk of what we call primary peritoneal carcinoma, which arises from the peritoneum, and it looks just like ovarian cancer, but the tubes in the ovaries are out, and so it probably didn't start there. And it's long enough, unfortunately, after the uh, prophylactic surgery that it's probably not just something microscopic that was missed. It probably is a true primary degeneration. Anything in conclusion that you would uh, recommend for us primary care providers uh, in terms of looking for and treating these women at higher risk? One thing that I always try to mention is that when talking to women who may be at risk or when identifying women who may be at higher risk, it's important once you get past that first step of recognition that the woman just, or the individual, it may be a man if he actually has a strong family history and his daughters may be at risk, that the woman should just go and have a conversation with someone about that risk. It doesn't necessarily commit them to doing testing. It doesn't commit them to doing screening. It just means that they should have a discussion to see you know, whether or not it may be valuable to them. And that discussion could either be held with the primary care provider in a different setting when there's a little bit more time, or it could actually be a referral to somebody who deals with this on an ongoing basis. 
And the other thing that I would mention is that unlike our usual circumstance where we're dealing with just the patient in front of us, when we're dealing with potential hereditary predispositions and not just to breast cancer but to other types of cancer and indeed to other diseases, we really are are dealing with families as a whole. And so if you're talking to a woman about what she should be doing because of her strong family history, that same advice actually applies to her sisters and potentially to her daughters. And it's worth sort of mentioning that because that's often a stimulus for people to go get information. Even if they themselves don't necessarily think it would be useful, they may want to go and get it so that they have more information for their family. I want to thank Dr. Mark Robson from the Clinical Genetic Service, Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering. He's been discussing with us how to evaluate and follow and treat uh, people at increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer. Uh, I'm Dr. Lee Friedman. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.